Welcome to the MacroFab Engineering Podcast. I'm your guest, Al Williams. And we're your hosts, Parker Doman. And Stephen Craig. This will be episode 57 of the MacroFab Engineering Podcast. Uh, we're feeling pretty good, right, guys? Yeah, yeah, 57. The Heinz episode, perhaps? <laughs> Our guest this week is Al Williams, embedded system designer, blogger for Hackaday, author of many, many books. Many books. And a ham. Uh, ham radio. In more ways than one, yes. <laughs> <laughs> was, that, was that an apt description? I think so, yeah. Okay, uh, ham, cool. definitely. <laughs> so, um, yeah, do you have anything else to... Uh, you know, add to that description? You know, I, it, it's just, you'll, you'll see as we go around, it's just, I do all sorts of things, and especially as at my age, I've done a lot of everything over time. So I've done everything from software development to dissecting microprocessors under a microscope to find out why they fail. And so it's really hard to fit me in a particular category, but you did a pretty good job. So I copied it almost exactly from your Twitter description. Oh, well, there you yeah, go. Yeah, we, we were doing our research uh, earlier and uh, and Parker just just grabs it all and dumps it on the page. He's like, "Here we go. We got a description." Well, we all know if it's on Twitter, it's got to be true. So there right, you go, right, right. Yeah. So so we kind of uh, um, caught wind of of you a few weeks ago uh, and tried to schedule a, a podcast and able to get that now. Um, so yeah, uh, just in talking before uh, starting the recording of the podcast, uh, Al's a very interesting. Is it is right of calling Al? Sure. So, uh, very, very interesting individual, uh, very well versed in a lot of different areas. So uh, let's let's jump in and, uh, and see what's going on. So Hackaday, uh, I guess kind of would be interesting. It's uh, how do you get started writing for Hackaday? Well, so I don't want to go all the way back because that goes way, way, way back. But were you one of the uh, original writers oh, no, for Hackaday? No, not at all. So back I, when all the uh, pictures were black and white. No, no, no. I, I, <laughs> I was actually doing other things back in those days, but uh, I was a reader of Hackaday, but I wasn't a writer. You know, I, I was. It's funny when I was younger, I hated English class. I hated writing. I was not. I came to writing very late in life. Uh, but like you said, I've written a lot of books. But in particular, I had written for Doctor Dobbs. And eventually, Dr. Dobbs, as you may or may not know, kind of wound down. The Internet's just kind of sucked the life out of magazines. Mm. And so for a while, I was, you know, I was doing my own blog, but that's, you know, ir irregularly because it's just you and you just do what you feel like when you do it. And I happened to be visiting uh, the Hackaday site. And actually, it was kind of funny. I had bought one of these cheap Chinese um, frequency generators, you know, the, the 40, 50 yeah, buck yeah, yeah, ones. yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I had Windows software. I mostly run Linux, and I thought, well, that that sucks. So I went and got a USB sniffer, and I figured out the protocol. And of course, being who I am, I wrote it up and put it on Google Docs and posted it around. Well, Hackaday had picked up that story, and so I read Hackaday from time to time. But it wasn't something I went and visited every day, you know, religiously. wasn't a fanboy. But since, of course, if you're on it, you go look, right? Obviously, oh, you want to see sure. what, you want to yeah, see you want to see that traffic are. spike. Yeah. yeah right. And and of course you got to look at the commenters. Of course half of them are always nasty to whatever you post. So you know, you got to look and say, "Oh, that guy's an idiot," right? So um, oh, this has been done before. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's not a hack. That's our favorite one right in the Hackaday. Yeah. <laughs> that's not a hack. Uh, uh, funny story about that later. But you know, so I, I went and looked at that and it just by coincidence, Mike, and I'm not even going to attempt Mike's last name. It's like Sizzik, the the yeah, main 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually pictured his name, how it's spelt on the blog, and I was just like, uh, uh, I'll let Al do that it's, one. It's, it's, it's Mike. <laughs> and in fact, Mike and I even had lunch the other day in Southern California, and I was like, yeah, I'm, I've heard him say his own name, and I'm still not going to attempt it. But uh, he had posted the, you know, well, we're hiring, and he does that every once in a while, right? They said, well, you know, send us a sample of what you would do and tell us why you're the guy. And so, of course, they kind of knew my work from elsewhere. And so we wound up talking and, and coming to some deal for that. Um, you know, it's funny. We've got a very diverse crew. They're all over the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's interesting because different people have different aspects. So you'll see, like, if you look at if you're interested in biohacking, right? Well, Dan Malone is the kind of the guy that does that. Now, I'm not saying he's the only one, but he's clearly that's his thing, yeah. right? Or Brian with the 3D printing. Not that none of us do 3D printing stuff, but he's clearly that guy. Right. Uh, uh, they're, they're all their own uh, circles, so to speak. And circle, they overlap we, a bit. We get some overlap. But, but uh, you know, and so some people contribute a little bit. You know, Bill Hurd, we were talking about him earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'll do some really super videos, and they take him forever to produce. So he doesn't do 30 of them a month, right? He does a couple of them. Uh, and then some people produce quite a bit of, of other stuff. So it's it's a great crew to work with, and I've been really uh, happy. It's really been good to get back into that writing and having some kind of dialogue with an audience. So, so that's like the uh, best thing about that gig is you get to work with all these people around the world, right? I think it's it's twofold. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think working with all these people, I mean, you get a lot of uh, a lot of interesting different viewpoints. We have private communication channels where we talk about things and we'll secret hack a day channel. That's right. The secret. <laughs> and, and there's something to hack into. Right. But, you know, <laughs> and of course, and write we an have, article uh, about it. Yeah. And get a hack a date about it. Completely meta. And yeah. we have the tip line where people will come in and say, oh, look, you know, I made a Arduino blinking LED. You should write about that. And then we kind of look through those. So that's kind of and we discuss some of that. So that's kind of interesting. But I think the other thing is just getting that interaction with the readers. Uh, the Hackaday audience is very vocal. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad, right? You can get some very nasty comments from time to time. So how do you, when you uh, write an article, how do you deal with those kind of comments? You just wear your asbestos underwear and you just carry on, right? So you, <laughs> you, you get pretty thick-skinned. And, and, you know, I've been writing a long time. So that's not unique to Hackaday. Sure. I think it's just with the with the currency of the, you know, I can post anonymously, essentially, exactly. then right. you get a lot more of it. But there's always somebody willing to tell you you suck, right? If you're not, if, if nobody will tell you you suck, you're probably not getting read. So yeah, um, you guys are probably too young to remember Wayne Green, who had the Ham Radio Magazine 7-3. I mean, I think he used to deliberately do that in his editorials, just say, well, you know, I think we should sterilize poor people or something. And everybody go, ah, you know, but that was, <laughs> you know, and you're thinking, I know he doesn't really think that, right? So I, I think there's a lot of that that goes on where, where people like to get stirred up and... And, sure. And, uh, and, and especially we have when of, there's no commitment to it, right? There's no downside. You just right. I, I'm I'm Joe and and I and you suck, right? Yeah. But but if you look, a lot of times in the comments, you'll write something, and some commenter will say, "Oh, that reminds me of this YouTube video," and you'll say, "Oh, that's cool," and and you'll go build something, or you might go write something else about it, or 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 change your hack up and make it better. Exactly. Or or you know something like that. In fact, I rarely build stuff that I I write about in Hackaday. But the other day I saw one, it was, it was so cool. The guy had built a Z80 processor board all on a breadboard mm-hmm. and he had it just, you know, it was a handful of parts. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. And at the time I had just moved into an apartment and a lot of my stuff was, I'm just going to say, not with me. It's a long story. And I didn't have a lot going on. I thought, wow, that would be a great project. And so I've got that about three quarters built and now I've got all my stuff moving 
So I haven't gotten back to it. But, you know, that's one of the few projects I've seen that I, I wrote about. And I was like, oh, I got to do that one. That's fun. <laughs> that, that, that sounds like an engineer right there. While moving into a new place, you, you kick up a project for building a computer. First board. <laughs> thing you unpack is your soldering iron and oscilloscope. I, you know, I, I made sure my scope had moved prior to because I knew I was going to have trouble getting some of my stuff out of the other house. So the scope was one of the first things that came over. Yeah, it was like in your passenger seat as you drove over to your uh, new place, right? More or less, yeah. So, so I'm curious about the content generation um, and kind of the freedom and creativity behind that. Do you kind of just get to pick things that you find are cool and go write about that? You or? know, Mike has said that before, that most of what they pay us for is our, our, uh, our filter of what's, what's relevant, what's sure. not relevant. So there's a huge amount of stuff on the Internet, right? And you can go find all of it yourself, right? It's not like we do original content, but it's not that – that most of what you see on Hackaday is something you couldn't go Google search for. The problem is when you go look at that, there's 10,000 of those things. Yeah. So which one's interesting? That's our job. We're kind of the good housekeeping seal of approval on saying this is our or Reader's Digest maybe is a better analogy. Yeah. Uh, now, we do a lot of original content, too, so I don't want to negate that. I mean, you come and there's some original things. But a lot of these daily posts that are real short and say, oh, look, somebody built a Z80 computer. Uh, somebody built a robot that uses some unusual way of sensing things. That saves you a lot of time from having to go figure that out. Mostly we do that on our own recognizance. Like I said, we'll draw from the tip line, but we're expected to just find some of our own stuff too. Mm. You can't just sit and suck everything out of the tip line. Um, I, you know, I think the, the key to that is, is our experience tells us what's boring and what's not boring, and we kind of try to bring stuff in. Like, I haven't seen that before. Oh, that's interesting. Sometimes we'll kick things around. You know, somebody will say, well, that doesn't sound right to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, does that seem plausible or is this a hoax? And we'll discuss that a little bit. Uh, the editors do go through the articles. You know, every once in a while they'll say, eh, I don't know if that's really the right approach for that or something. But they, they're they pretty light on editing compared to what I'm used to back from the old days in magazines where it was a, a much more slow process. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, mostly it's us picking what we think people will like to read. Oh, that's really cool. So... You can't, you know, as you said, you can't keep pulling out of the tip jar. So, you know, what's your process for finding new content? Oh, well, that's a trade secret. <laughs> <laughs> can't, can't release that one. Well, what's your secret for getting customers for prototyping? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> having a podcast. <laughs> having a podcast. There you go. <laughs> that's our trade that's secret. That's the old Dilbert, right? Do they have their own computer column? No, anyway. Um, <laughs> you'll have to look that one up if you don't know it. But, um you know, I think the, the key is I've got a lot of resources that I just look at anyway, right? Mm. So, you know, who's uh, the, the Dave down there in Australia, his forums are always full of stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. blog, And they'll go, oh, you know, uh, uh, I was just tinkering around the other day and I created nuclear fusion in a mason jar. And you go, wow, that's pretty interesting. I'm going to go find that. And <laughs> and, uh, that's next week on Hackaday, by the way, nuclear fusion in a mason jar. The other thing is, you know, you'll go look at YouTube and sort by, by, uh, rel- you know, date, right? So, okay, there's new yeah. things. Like, I, I do a lot on FPGAs, right? We were talking about how everybody's kind of got their little spot. Um, my fetish is, is I like to design obscure CPU architectures. And so I do that in FPGA. And so I'll go search for FPGA sort and say, well, you know, first you got to get rid of all the ones about download this FPGA book for free. No, don't care about that, you know. <laughs> and the university lecture that's in some language you can't understand, nope, don't care about that. And then, but you'll run through 50 of those and you'll go, oh, wait, this guy's got a computer vision stuff done in a, 
uh, very small Xilinx FPGA or something, that's really interesting because he, he explains how he got that result. And mm. so we'll write that up. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so, so you're kind of, you know, you were talking about the specialties that everyone has, even though it's kind of, I guess, unspoken that each person has a specialty. Yours is kind of the FPGA and the chip computer world kind of thing? You know, I'm kind of weird because I do spread a lot of different things. But, yeah, if there's something FPGA-related on the tip line, for example, you're, I'm likely to go grab one. it if, if nobody else has. <laughs> um, anything with to do with a custom CPU or Verilog, VHDL, you know, that kind of stuff, I've kind of, that's kind of my beat. Uh, but I do a few other things, too. Uh, of course, the ham radio, there's a couple of us that are hams, but you'll notice we'll tend to pick up the ham radio stuff more so than the guys who aren't. I like to, uh, I've done a few over time about bringing kids into technology because mm. that's a real passion of mine as well. And you, you know, there's a lot of work being done on that at the school level, things like Project Lead the Way and, you know, a lot of these STEM or what are they calling it now? They don't like STEM anymore. It's uh, STEAM or whatever with yeah, the art, Steam, art yeah, in the middle it, of it. Yeah. I haven't bought into that one yet, but there's a lot of <laughs> initiatives for that. And I like to cover things like that. Um, one of the things that I, I used to do back when I was down south of town was uh, go out and do things like for the engineering classes, either give them a talk or it's really cool. One of the schools down there, they have a thing, deal where the kids will come up with a product, a product. You guys ought to get involved in that. And like one year, it was like a wheelchair that uh, moved your legs automatically, you know, so to keep your legs circulating. So as you move the wheelchair, your legs would move up and down. Oh, that's cool. And of course, the podcast listeners can't see all my wonderful hand motions. But <laughs> Uh, or, you know, the other was like the glow-in-the-dark things to help fire in a fire help you get out of your house and things like that. And it's amazing when you go as an engineer to a class like that and you go, I'm not a mechanical engineer, you know, and I'm not a, <clears throat> you know, I don't know anything about glow-in-the-dark panels for fire and I don't know anything about wheelchairs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But just your background as an engineer means you can go ask them questions that'll make them go, oh, I didn't think about that, right? right, right. Or they need to measure something and they don't know how, and, and you'll go, oh, well, that's easy. I know how, I can figure out how to do that and help you out. And, and I love that because I feel like all of us had so much help at some point in our careers, right? Mm -hmm. And you can't mm -hmm. ever pay those people back, so you pay it forward. Sure, And, and I love sure. to do that. So a lot of times I'll write in about Hackaday something to do with the kids or some way to get kids in. Well, that's cool. Yeah. How about uh, um, do you do you kind of have a, a running backlog of articles at any time, or are you the kind of guy where you write one and then you're clear and then you start a new one? Well, it's really funny because it used to be when I did monthly columns, I always had a couple of extras laying around for that month that you just said, nope, just don't feel it, got to do it. <laughs> right. We do such volume at Hackaday that I don't really get that luxury now. They back them up, you know, so you're you're constantly contributing. There's sometimes, depends on how desperate they are for content, you might have a one or two day lag, mm. you might have a week lag, it just depends. And they the, the editors do all that scheduling. Now, of course, obviously, if there's some hot topic, right, uh, what was the thing the other day, what was I the other day, a year ago, where the Nest thermostats all shut down for some obscure reason. What, and didn't the, they shut down the servers for something? No, it was, uh, it was a bug and a firmware update that caused the batteries to drain immediately. And so, <laughs> That's so, terrible. Well, and what's really bad is you think, okay, bad enough to wake up and my thermostat's dead, but apparently one of the big use cases for Nest 
is I own a rental house out on the coast of Maine. Nobody's there. Well, I can log in and check the temperature and all that. Well, when your battery dies and everything freezes, that was like in January, too. It was like last January. So something like that's pretty topical. You know, they'll push that. And and sometimes we'll even say that, hey, this one's hot. You know, it needs to go up to the front of the line. Sure, sure. If they agree, they'll run it quicker. But, yeah, so I don't really have a big backlog, although that's contrary to my, my usual nature. Hmm. Uh, it's just okay. for the volume, you just can't hardly do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's similar to, uh, was it, uh, S3 from Amazon went down uh, earlier this week. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, we use, well, MacRub's all online. And so, fortunately, none of our uh, customer-facing stuff went down. But our back back-end, like, chat program, mm-hmm. we use a HipChat runs on S3 for all the attachments. So that wasn't working at all. And it was just like it was just like pulling your hair out. Oh yeah, just completely crapped the bed. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a pretty picture. But uh. it was like we had to kind of like do it the old school way when email stuff. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> you, you, yeah, you have to think about it and be like, how do I do this? Well, this is where I say, well, when I was a kid, we'd love to have email attachments, right? That's the, <laughs> the, um, the Amazon we actually thing. Just I'll, pass thumb drives around. Exactly. Yeah. As we call it, Nike Net, right? Where you hoof it down the hole. <laughs> That's right. But, you know, I'd probably offend my friends at Amazon, but I did think it was interesting that while all these websites went down because their storage went down, mm-hmm. the Amazon retail site did not go down. So you have to wonder do they not use S3 or they do don't. they just have a diverse <laughs> enough? Uh, back end that it's fault tolerant. I don't know. I haven't I haven't looked or into. There's that. a priority level. Pro- yeah, priority levels, or they have like separate, like division or separation between for S3, like a different production S3 or something like that. Hmm. Just guessing. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I was hoping I was hoping someone else would have something there. Sorry, blank. Well, went, went off down that uh, rat hole. So, uh, so one more thing about Hackaday. Is there something that you've written or an article on Hackaday that's like your favorite? You know, I don't know if I could pick one particular favorite. I mean, clearly, I think anybody can imagine the original stuff you do is probably closer to your heart than saying, hey, Bob did a robot. Exactly. Um, Sorry to all the Bobs out there that build robots. Exactly. Yeah. No no offense, Bob, but I mean, you know, it's my, I want to talk about my stuff. I think what my favorites that come to mind though, is when you get a really cool comment, like I did a series on Verilog Mm -hmm. on YouTube and I think it's like a three or four part. And we were talking about this earlier. My YouTube videos are not like Bill's. They're more like Khan Academy where it's like, okay, look at my screen and I'll talk about what I'm doing, but it's not the, you know, hi, I'm Al and and look at my scar on my chin or whatever. Um, (laughs) But the comments on some of those videos, one of them was, uh, let me think if I can remember it right. It's like, man, I wish you had been my v- my Verilog professor in college. <laughs> <laughs> and I think those are the ones that kind of make you smile. Oh, yeah. Um, there was a, a project I did years back uh, on doing 386 protected mode. And that ran in Dr. Dobbs. That was some of the first stuff I did for them. And when Dr. Dobbs shut down, there was a lot of Twitter activity, people going, oh, no, you know, how sad. And the two tweets that I really remember from that, just thinking of memorable things, was Mark Cuban had actually tweeted something to the effect of, I learned everything from Dr. Dobbs, I'm so sad, or something like that. And another one said on that articles that I had written, the early ones, it said, one of my best childhood memories was hand typing in all this code for this 386 DOS extender that was in Dr. Dobbs. And you're like, that's awesome, right? You know, somebody read that and it became part of their life, right? Oh, yeah. That's really cool. Uh, Unfortunately, there was an insurance 
agent guy named A.L. Williams back in the, I don't know, 90s. And he did kind of a multi-level marketing. So Al Williams, A.L. Williams. Mm -hmm. For a long time, Amazon couldn't tell us apart. And he writes all these motivational books. So I used to get mail every once in a while that says, Mr. Williams, your book changed my life. And I'm thinking, oh, God, your life must be awful. (laughs) 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 Oh, no. You know, I'm so sorry. And then you'd read a little more and you'd think, oh, yeah, other guy, right? Not the... The other Adam Goldberg. So, <laughs> well, uh, real quick, uh, can you can you just give us uh, a handful of titles of books that you've uh, been involved in and written? Oh Lord, well, you know, on the hardware side, um, I did the last major book I did for a big publisher that wasn't a self-published was the uh, printed circuit board book, and I, and I hate to tell you I can't remember the titles, but it basically talked about Eagle mm-hmm. and doing printed circuit board books. It's interesting because the software books, you do them, and in a year, every one of them that's sold that's ever going to sell is gone, right? Right, right? And the hardware books just sell and sell and sell. They don't sell big volumes right away, but they just keep selling. They just so, trickle, yeah. So that book's probably 10 or 12 years old, and I still get a little cash out of that every once in a while. But hmm. uh, it's pretty good. You know, it was a good book at the time. It's still got a lot of value, but it's also an old book, right? Uh, the, so the printed circuit board, I did a basic stamp book that was real popular at one time. Again, the titles are really tough to come by. The ones I really liked title-wise was one was called Steal This Code, which is an <laughs> Abby Hoffman joke, which you probably don't get if you're over under the age of 50. Um, the MFC Black Book was probably one of my favorites. The MFC was the Microsoft Foundation classes. Mm-hmm. I taught a lot of classes all over the country based on that book uh, with Addison Wesley. And so that was one of those books where I just really thought, man, this book, you know, it, it came out the way I wanted it to come out. Everybody liked it. It was a good book. You know, books are like kids. You love all of them, but <laughs> <laughs> but you do know that some of them are a little more special than the others, right? So. Wow, that's, that's, that's awesome. Awesome. So, uh, Ham Radio, are you still active? Well, that's a tricky What's question. What's your handle? Well, there, you know, you don't do that. That's CB radio, uh, ham radio. My, my call sign's WD5GNR. Maybe that's the better, better answer for that. The, uh, I'm kind of, I, I got licensed in 1977, I think. So You're 14, right? For a long time, 14. So I think that's right. Anyway, have to do the math. But yeah, I was 14 and I think that was 77. Um, I've been active off and on a lot, and I've done all... Ham radio is a great hobby because you can do lots of different things, right? There's not just one activity. And so over that time, I've kind of done lots of different kinds of activity. But I always said I've always gone through more solder than log books, right? I, I've never been one to really... <laughs> you know, when I was in college, uh, working the satellites was kind of hard, the ham radio satellites. And so a bunch of us got together. We got a station going for it. We made a couple of contacts. And I saw somebody a couple of weeks later, they said, oh, you're still making a lot of contacts on the satellite? I'm like, well, no, we did that, right? <laughs> I didn't really want to talk to anybody. I just wanted to make it work, right? Once, we, once you talk to some guys and say, well, that's it, we're, we're done. Uh, right now, because I just moved, I have no antennas. But you can actually do a surprising amount of ham radio now on the Internet. And, of course, there's always the group that goes, well, that's not really ham radio. Well, it is sort of because it does get rebroadcast out. Mm-hmm. You know, so you are on the air. You're just not on your radio on the air. Right. And so you can sit with a little handheld radio now and talk to people all over the world, even in a commu- you know, group talk even. Yeah. And it's half of it, if not more, is being carried over the Internet, not over the airwaves. Right. And so I do a little bit of that. I'm still a little active there. Most of my ham radio activity, I have a group of folks down in south uh, the south part of town, down in Clear Lake, 
and it's basically a bunch of hams. We we claim that we're well, we're all people who build things. You know, we build something. We build antennas or computers or robots or radios or something. Uh, we claim that we go and help kids with school projects and stuff, and we do do that. But really, it's just a bunch of old guys that have breakfast once a month and and talk about like we're talking now. Uh, pretty interesting. You guys should come out to that someday and do a live podcast from one of our breakfasts. Yeah, that sounds great. Fun. Yeah, you'd yeah, find that, that entertaining. Great. I promise. Um, it's a good group. We've done that for N three L L L. Tom Frobase and I started that. I we think about twenty two years ago. Wow! And it's just gone on since then. Every month without fail, there's been a breakfast for uh, for that group. So, this might be a silly question given what you just said, but would you recommend ham radio as a hobby to uh, a youngster? And how would said person get into the hobby? Well, you know, it's a lot different than it used to be, and and I don't know. I mean, that's a that's a provocative question. I think that if you're the right kind of person, ham radio, there's something for everybody in it. So some people do where they prepare for emergencies, and some people build stuff, and some people talk on satellites, and some people bounce signals off the moon, and some people just talk. Right? They just get on there, and you know, any day, any time of the day or night, you can get on there and hear somebody talking about whether they like or don't like Donald Trump or, you know, whatever. The, <laughs> and we're not going to get into that. But, the original uh, blogging. There, there's got to be there's got to be some form of media that's not discussing that. So let's avoid that topic. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, there's always something to do there. I think it's a great hobby. As a parent, you go, boy, that's a cool hobby for a kid because it's got, you know, you get marketable skills. It's, it's pretty safe. You know, you don't get all this weird stuff going on. Uh, I think a lot of the kids you really have to struggle to make that relevant to them. Because, yeah. okay, if I want to talk to somebody in Europe, well, I'll just get on the chat line and talk to somebody in Europe, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. If I want to go build uh, I was stuff, about to say aim, but I was like, oh, wait. <laughs> yeah, I'm the old guy here. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe ICQ? You want to, you know, I don't know. Oh, man. <laughs> um, so, you know, again, I think it's a great thing, and I would encourage people, but I do think it's tough to get them interested. We had a ham, he's uh, what we call a silent key now, which means he's passed away, but down there who worked for NASA uh, at the Johnson Space Center, Nick Lance, N3, or, I'm sorry, not N3, uh, KC5KBO. And he was worked with the schools, and he also is the guy that got all the ha- uh, the astronauts, their ham license. Or I, say all, mm. I say all of them, most of them, maybe not all of them. But he would go out to the schools and run these ham radio classes, and he was just a ham radio producing machine. I mean, they, he turned out, I would say, hundreds of school kids that got their ham licenses. And you asked about how they get started. I mean, that's the best way. Clubs and schools will have classes. I mean, you can self-study. There's plenty of stuff on the Internet. It's not that hard. You may or may not know. You don't have to know Morse code anymore. So that was an impediment for a lot of people, right, is learning the Morse code is very difficult. The tests are multiple choice, you know, so it's not like, oh, I've got to become some math wizard to do that. Right. Uh, and, and kids regularly pass them. I think the youngest is five. I think there's a five-year-old ham somewhere or has been. <laughs> um, you know, and if you find somebody like that, in ham radio, we have a tradition of having a mentor, and that's called an Elmer. And so you'll find somebody that will Elmer a young person or an older person, whoever wants to get into it, and they will help you. It used to be when I got my license as a kid, you had to go travel to an FCC office at a certain time and take the tests. Now, volunteers do that under the authority of the FCC, but, you know, it's all done by these clubs. And so that was one of the things I used to do for Nick is me and several other people would go out and give his classes the exams because he couldn't because he was their teacher, right? It's a conflict Mm -hmm. of interest. 
Um, so there, there's plenty of opportunity there. And depending on where you are, there's almost always some local ham radio club that would help you. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I uh, brought it up because I own a Jeep. And a lot of people, uh, a lot of Jeepers run ham radio off-road because CB has limited range. Well, you know, surprisingly, a big influx in the community is the preppers. <laughs> you know, if you go to the local ham the meetings Day now, crowd. there's a lot of preppers there going, you know, well, when the big one hits, I'm going to have my radio and uh, I'm going to know how to use it. And I mean, that's fine if that's what you want to do. It's a, like I can say there's a million activities you can do. But where's your power source coming from? Well, that's, I don't know. Batteries, <laughs> hamster wheel. I don't know. <laughs> I, I used to work with a guy who was a, a, a big ham and he... Uh, he had like 50 antennas on his car and like a weather station, all kinds of stuff. And he was just, uh, just a very interesting fellow. But he he used to part uh, partake in um, the competitions. Oh yes, contesting. Where uh, he, I didn't know this, but they would weigh your gear. Uh, they would actually weigh how much your radio was, and whoever you got extra points for having a lighter radio that could broadcast further. At least in some of the contests yeah, he was doing, yeah. which is. Well, very there's also, you know, in Europe, it's very common to go find radio transmitters and they, it's almost like a outdoor, I mean, it is an outdoor sport. I mean, huh. I'm just imagining like people taking their radios and drilling holes into the enclosure and taking screws out to make it lighter. Balsa wood. That's the, that's the, pine, that's the pine wood derby you're thinking of. <laughs> yeah. So I made a mistake with that guy one time. He, he had actually brought his radio to work. We had, we had asked him to um, because... Oh, it's just a small radio uh, because we were actually trying to cause some uh, some of our products to fail based off of uh, radio interference, and and we had hit one of his small radios in the in the engineering lab, and we had been testing with it for a while. He walks in, and I grabbed the transmitter, and I said, "Calling all aliens! Calling all aliens!" and the look on his face—I've never seen so much disgust on his face with how how much disregard I had for the, for the ham laws. Well, that's because the FCC, if they catch you doing something, you're responsible. They, right? So it's like he, he's going to the big house for you for that. Right, right. right now, the right, reality right. is they probably aren't going to catch you. But uh, No, right, right. He was, he was very upset with me. <laughs> probably should not have done that. So in like a billion years, when that signal travels across the galaxy and goes into the alien transmit right. uh, receivers... And it's going to start the interstellar war, right? Right, right. And it's all my fault. <laughs> I, I can see that bad movie where the alien says something in the subtitles, the jer Earth jerk, right? Yeah, that's, that's right. And then they come and destroy Earth. It's like a, a death laser beam shoots down. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so we were talking about this earlier in the podcast, but uh, like current projects. So what is currently on your bench right now? I know you just moved, but... Yeah, it, a lot of my bench stuff is in the garage, still in wrapping plastic and everything. But uh, I do have... I've got the the Z80 on the breadboard running, uh, or almost running. Most of the projects I'm doing right now are not pure hardware. They're FPGA-related, and so I've got a few things going on. I told you I've got the fetish for kind of weird custom CPUs. Uh, I actually have a patent on a on a feature for something called a, uh, a transfer triggered architecture CPU. So uh, if you look, I've written about these a few times where it's a single instruction. So how do you make a computer with one instruction? 
and I'll leave that as a reader uh, reader exercise. But uh, that's a transfer triggered architecture. That's one way to do that. There's some other ways as well. So right now, I like to do that. I like to sit and think, well, okay, this is what computers look like today. What could they look like? You know, what would be the? And so right now, I'm working on a a very reduced uh, real estate space CPU. So something that could fit very small FPGA or leave a lot of room in the FPGA for something else. Maybe like a and, CPLD? Or, well, yeah, maybe not that small, but I don't know. We'll find out. Because right now I've kind of got the architecture laid out, and I've been writing some software simulation for it. Uh, I haven't moved into actually moving it into the FPGA yet. Because that's one thing I've found. If you just, you know, it's like anything else. If you just go start slinging the Verilog into the FPGA, it kind of gets ugly at some point. So if you start working out the architecture details and software where it's very easy to just go, oh, I think I should make that, you know, a zero after it does that or something. Oh, that's one line of code and it's done and I can try that almost immediately. Uh, the FPGA tools, I'm, I'm a big evangelist for FPGAs because that when I well when I was in school there weren't any such things right so I didn't learn anything about that and uh, when I started coming out the tool sets were very expensive you had to go to you know you had to get a Sun workstation big money big money for the software tough stuff and now it's just nothing right you you know we did an article that was another one of my favorites off of Hackaday was the lattice has that ice stick and it's like. I think it's $19 or maybe it's $29. That thing is absolutely terrible. It, it's awful, but for the price. <laughs> but for the price, right? For because the price. Free, free software. If you want to learn about FPGAs and you've got the price of a dinner at the at Landry's, I start I there. think the tool set just made me lose my hair. Oh, well, that's the thing. I don't. you, you got to go read the article. I don't use the tool set. There's an open source tool uh, chain for it, hey. and it's actually really capable, and that's what – so go read the articles. I uh, do a lot of uh, Altera development. And in fact, if you read that article, you'll see that I said, well, I started out trying to use the Windows software and then after it would, or the Linux software, and then after it uh, wouldn't validate because my Ethernet adapter isn't ETH zero and hasn't been for 10 years, right? Yeah. And then when I solved that problem, then there was this other, pro there was just this chain. And I finally, I just said, okay, three strikes, you're out. I don't care about your software. I'm going to go get the open source tool chain. Mm -hmm. And it's actually quite capable. So, you know, I agree. It's not the best thing in the world. I'm, I'm a big Xilinx guy, although I did learn on Altera, oddly enough. But here's what gets me. And if you do Altera stuff, I think it's interesting. If, if, you're, if you're listening and you think, well, I'd like to learn about FPGAs, and you go start looking around the Internet, you'll see all these projects, uh, you know, or the light flasher, you know, or this is a Pong game or something. Well, I don't really need an FPGA to necessarily do that, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I try to bring out in the Hackaday columns is – why do you want to use an FPGA other than just, I haven't done it and I want to do it? Yeah, right? yeah, I think yeah, that's yeah. not a sufficient reason. And as you probably know, I mean, you, you can do things in parallel, mm -hmm. and, you, and that's the key, is I can build circuits and hardware, and they effectively execute all the time. There's not an execution thread. Right. Uh, the example I always use when I'm in class would be something like, I want to monitor you know, 100 sensors all at one time well, on a software loop I can only look at so many of them at a time. Yeah, yeah, you and can I'm, only look at one at a time. Well, it depends on how you build it, right? I mean, maybe if I've got a, well, or I've got a eight bit port and I read eight of them at a time, yeah, 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 screens yeah. or something, yeah, right? Yeah. But I can't read a hundred at a time. So the time for me reading number zero to number ninety nine is some finite amount of time, and it's right. pretty big. And then I'm not looking at anything. Whereas with the FPGA, if I'm looking at a hundred, 
if some one of them trigger, triggers, I know it immediately. Yeah, you basically take one module and then you kind of multiply that over 100 and then you get to look at them well, all at the same time. And that was and that was my next point is then if I need 200 tomorrow, as long as I got the space to do it in the FPGA, I just make another 100 copies. Right, because right, it's all reconfigurable. You and, can, and, and if you if you if you can potentially take four expensive chips that have specific functions and push them into one FPGA that's cheaper than all four of them. Right. You're done. Also, the blinding speed that you can get out of a FPGA that you can't get off of a microcontroller. Or well, and that's where the speed comes from, though, right? Is I yeah. mean, the, if I had an infinitely fast CPU, I could scan all those hundred sensors in right. you know eight nanoseconds or whatever I can do in the FPGA. But I don't have an infinitely fast processor. Right, right. right. And it's not really about the speed. Like a like a baseline Altera is about fifty megahertz. Whereas you can get like a modern PIC32 to go at like 250 megahertz. But the thing is, at 50 megahertz, that Altera can slam all 100 of those inputs at the same time. And that's where you get your speed boost from. Well, and plus, I mean, and I, you know this, but if you don't know FPGAs, comparing the speed of the CPU to the speed of the FPGA is not really no. quite the same thing. It's more like comparing the speed of a memory chip, you know, than the... Yeah than the CPU, but that's part of the, the charm of it. So I do think that's a, a – you were asking me what was on my bench. I think the the new CPU, which has kind of got a – you know, to make it small, the, the data path on it is serial, which is actually funny because that goes back to like the old, old computers like the EDSAC and the – you know, all those had serial data paths too, mainly because they were like mercury delay lines carrying bits on the mercury, right? So it's kind of funny. It's almost full circle back to that kind of old-style computer – but the goal is is to not take up a lot of real estate and still have a pretty capable process. So are you going to have like a GCC compliant compiler for this thing? <laughs> you know, so, so okay, interview's over. <laughs> um, Did I go a little too far that one? You know, every time I've tried to port GCC, I have stuck my head in the oven for several hours. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, no, but I have tried it. You know, the, the big processor that I did a while back that I was talking about with the one instruction, it could easily host GCC. Mm. And I've looked at a couple other options, but you really want GCC. And I, I, I the documentation for that is just heinous. And the, the, the and, and who knows, maybe it's trivially simple and I'm an idiot and somebody's out there listening going, God, what an idiot, right? But, <laughs> but, it, it, but now people can tell you. There you go. So yeah. I'll, yeah. send, will, send your, send comments, your uh, comments on how bad I'm an idiot. Too, but, <laughs> but but I think the the key there is there's other languages for that do okay for what I want to do, and there's even other C compilers, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. I think even retargeting LCC looks like it would be easier, and I just haven't done that. Uh, what I wound up with there is I wound up doing a fourth cross compiler for it. Okay, and. You know, one of the things, talking about interesting articles, I did this one for Hackaday, too. One of the things, if you design your own CPU architectures, you get tired of building your tools over and over again. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have a, a choice. You can say, well, I'll clone the, you know, XYZ, a PIC32. I'll clone that, and then I can use their tools. Well, yeah, but what fun is that? I can go buy a PIC32. Right. Or you can go build your own, all your own tools. And uh, I have a universal cross-assembler that makes horrible, horrible molestation of the GCC preprocessor. <laughs> but I can retarget that assembler in about three minutes by filling out a form, basically, instead of actually writing any code. Uh, and that's actually, I, I did that for Dr. Dobbs, and I redid it later in a different way for Hackaday. So it's out there on the, on the Internet. But it was funny. There was a Hackaday article the other day. What was the name of that computer? Oh, the A, A to Z, the letter A, the number two, the letter Z, where this guy had said, I wanted to learn all about computers, so I designed my own CPU, 
and I made it run an operating system and it's got video and it's got sound and it's got keyboard, you know, <laughs> and, and I can play, I don't remember if it was Zork or something, you know, and, and, you know, it wasn't. Oh, I watched that. That guy was crazy. It, yeah. And I mean, I was thinking, oh my Lord, I don't know how long that took him, but I mean, he did the entire thing soup to nuts. I was very impressed. I oh mean, yeah. Yeah. You know, some, it's, it's like I said about the kids, you know, some of them you're more impressed with than others, but it was like, wow, the range of things that he had to do. <laughs> to get all of he that stuff dedicated. working. Yeah, and, and also very knowledgeable, right? Because that's a lot of different skills. Writing a graphics program is a lot different skill than than designing a CPU, and that's sure. a lot different than writing, you know, I don't remember if it had the network. Interface drivers, controller, but, yeah, talking exactly. to the keyboard, outside world talking. Yeah, sure, the PS2 protocol and, the you know, all that stuff is, is, uh, is tricky. So I was very impressed. That was a big, big job for somebody. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, Al... So uh, do you all have anything uh, else to say? You know, this is the awkward end of the podcast. <laughs> this is the part where you say it's not me. It's not me. It's you. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. <laughs> it's not me or you. It's just the time. <laughs> I see. I see. So um, do you want to sign us out, Al? Well, sure. that was a brick wall ending. Well, uh... <laughs> so that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I was your guest, Al Williams. And we were your hosts, Parker Doman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thanks, guys.